CinemaSins has a fan club. It's called The Sin Club, and members get all sorts of things like early episodes, bonus videos, merch discounts, and even monthly bonus podcasts. Membership starts at $3 a month, and you can sign up now at patreon.com slash CinemaSins. And uh, we were like, ooh, this is good. And then um, and then it sucked. It was like not a good script at all. <laughs> we were like, oh, man, this does not work. Welcome to Sincast, presented by CinemaSins. All right, everybody, welcome to the Sincast. This is Chris Atkinson from CinemaSins, joined by Jonathan Watkins from CinemaSins. Hello, hello. Today we have a very special guest. It's director Aaron B. Koontz who is uh, coming out with the movie The Pale Door on August 21st. It's going to be in some theaters, I think, um, and uh, VOD um, on uh, August 21st. Uh, welcome, Aaron Koontz. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. Jonathan, it's a pleasure to be here. I, I, I got to say, I'm nervous. You go on CinemaSins, you make an indie film, you go on CinemaSins, you're like, oh, God, what is this going to mean? So, uh, but no, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to talk. Yeah, we're just going to, we're just going to live send your movie if that's cool. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Minute one. No, I'm uh, kidding. It is, oh. it is, it is a strange thing at times because we, we do a YouTube channel for fun where we're total assholes and then we uh, do podcast where we are not assholes at all and we show you how much we <laughs> you love. Know, maybe. Yeah, 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 maybe. Yeah, you're right. It is, it is debatable, but yeah. Um, I'm sure you guys have encountered this though. There's no one on the planet who could do a cinema sin better than a filmmaker on his own movie. So I'll just say that as well as you all do it. Trust me, we know, we know every little thing that we're trying to hide. We know every little thing that we're like, wait a second, God, I hope they don't notice that. Well, how do we shift this properly to kind of like divert the eyes from it that you all still find, but um, you know, so we know, so trust me, I could do my own cinema sins on movies. I, I so well, and, and yeah, I mean, that comes from watching the movie literally a hundred times while you're trying to get it prepared for release, right? Yeah. Well, and I also was uh, one of the editors on the film and the producer, writer. Yeah. So this has been a, yeah, this whole movie has been a crazy journey, but uh, well, I guess we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we will talk about The Pale Door, but I I, uh, I watched uh, that sci-fi uh, movie that you made called Camera Obscura uh, um, earlier. And uh Tell me about your experience on that film, because uh, it's an interesting premise for sure. Uh, it, it, I mean, I, I, I had fun with it, but uh, if you have some sort of experience you'd like to, to share on that, uh, I'm all ears. Yeah, I've alluded to this with a number of folks, but yeah, I mean, that was uh, quite literally the most difficult you know, the filmmaking process I've ever had. And um, I even considered quitting after making the movie. It was that, oh, it was that tough. So yeah, you know, look, I think it was my first feature. We were, we tried for years to get that thing made. I mean, the financing came through and fell through, I think at least four different times. Mm -hmm. And then the movie that was released was not even my cut of the film. There's like, I mean, there's like a, there's a, a version of it on the Oprah network or something. And I don't even know why it's there. And that's some other version. There's the ending, like there's a whole like beginning part that should have been at the end and like is now put at the front. And there's just so many weird things that happen on that. And, um, and I don't get me wrong. I mean, I think I made plenty of mistakes. It's a, I, I'm proud of a lot was there. I think I had a wonderful cast. I had wonderful people that I worked with and a wonderful crew. I think it was probably a little, little too much for me to bit off a little bit more than I should chew as a first feature. 
but there's still a lot of moments that I'm really proud of. Um, and I had a lot of fun making it in those aspects, but, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, getting any films made and it, look, I, I will say I'm lucky, you know, I'm a very, very lucky person. And I know that, and I'm fortunate that I have the Jerry Goldsmith cue and that universal logo that curves around, you know, the globe. Like that's, <laughs> that gives me chills every time. Then after that, I start to slowly deteriorate and die inside after that moment. But, um, <laughs> but you know, uh, but then, but there are still moments like there's, there's like a, like, I love, I love what Christopher Denham did. I love, you know, the kind of unhinged level that he had. And, yeah. You know, there's there's some great violence and uh, well, it depends which cut you saw, depending on which violence you saw. I saw some pretty heady violence uh, and that's uh, that was not a pun that I intended. But there, I, I saw some heady violence <laughs> in that in that movie. Um, there is a shot uh, and I'm, and please tell me that you're proud of the shot um, when uh, I, I'll, I, I mean, I guess I won't spoil everything here and just let people kind of know. There's a character that's killing another character with um, a like a like a weight, a barbell weight or whatever. <laughs> and uh, and while he does that, while he just hits, hit, you know, punches this guy in the face with it, the camera spins around and basically says, you know what? This is probably just a little bit too much for anybody to handle. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it, you know, it's, it, it's effective in that way where you imagine it, you know, you imagine the violence going on screen and everything. So I love I, that part. No, I appreciate you bringing that up. Actually. So there, there's a couple shots like that, that I'm really proud of that we pulled off. And that was one where, you know, I didn't want it to, it's, I mean, everything I do is going to have some level of gratuitousness to it because that's just part of my style. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's also, you're crossing a threshold where that's a serious film. And it's also dealing with someone with mental illness, you know, who's dealing with like, you know, PTSD and all this and like kind of how that comes together. So um, we, you know, I had this idea of doing that kind of like, you know, 360 shot. Um, but what was so tough, what tough about that was it starts clean and Denim doesn't have any blood on him and he's got this and we've got the normal guy there. Then mm-hmm. when you start to spin the camera around, you have to get that guy out, bring in the dummy that's all messed up. <laughs> then we're spraying blood in, you know, Christopher Denham's face, who, by the way, he was like, <laughs> we're like, well, how are we going to do this? We have to like sneak in. He's like, well, why don't you just have when the guy sits down, put blood in his mouth and have him spit it on me? And I'm like, Chris, oh my God, like, <laughs> no, I'm not going to make, because it's Charlie Talbert, who, by the way, that guy, that creepy guy, yeah. is, the, is the dude from Angus. Oh no, Angus? no way. Oh, no kidding. How no way. Up? Yeah, so that's part of the reason why I cast him, because I wanted to I wanted to kill the dude from Angus and make him like this masturbatory creep. So <laughs> I had no I just idea. Completely ruined my childhood. But his name's Charlie Talbert. He's a wonderful actor. Um, was in like the big short and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And uh, and he's just like, I'll spit in your face. Yeah, no problem. I'll spit blood in your face. No problem. <laughs> but uh, imagine doing that in 2020. Yeah, oh god. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, but I was proud of that shot. It's a fun shot, and just you know, there's there. There's a really good oneer that we had where we go in a police station, follow, come out of a police station, come back in, and that was really difficult. And so there, there were these moments that we got to flourish and. When I got to, I had a great crew. So the times when I got to really do it the way I wanted to, I thought we had some fun moments. Uh, it was just the rest of the stuff that I wasn't really given some of the freedom that I would have liked. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, I, it's I guess that's a common tale, especially when you're making your first movie. You 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 don't have the you know I guess the power or the 
um, or the wherewithal to know what to do, what to fight for and everything like that. And it's a learning experience, I'm I'm assuming. No, that's a great way of putting it because even though I technically had Final Cut, that my even and my final cut somehow does not exist on any of the versions that are out there. Mm-hmm. Not sure how that happened, but that's because <laughs> I just didn't think on how to fight back. Like I just kind of, I thought I was really, and I was lucky and I am lucky. And I was like, well, look, I, I'm just glad to have this experience. Like maybe I don't want to ruffle feathers. I don't want to push back on this. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. And I did, I didn't stand my ground and a lot of, and don't get me wrong. I made plenty of mistakes myself, but mm-hmm. I didn't stand my ground in the way that I should. And, and then we made a film after that called Scare Package, which is just like over the top horror comedy thing. That's like mm-hmm. the opposite. That's just a lot of fun. And that was kind of the counter. It was like, can we just get back to like why I love making movies? Let's just do this with our friends. Let's just throw a bunch of blood around. Let's have fun. Let's have mm-hmm. fun doing this. And then that that kind of, you know, got us back onto the journey and kind of course corrected. Um, and we also learned what we were capable of too. You know, we learned you know, how to, there were too many locations in that movie. There were 27 locations in camera obscura. That's stupid. That's stupid. You don't make an indie film with 27 (laughs) locations. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you just don't do it because you don't have time, you know, to to make that happen. So, you know, we just had to figure that out. And then, you know, I mean, scare package being done in pieces, but then the pale door was like the opposite. It's like, get, get to one place, stay there, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as long as you can. So, but yeah. The uh, the the scare package. Now you, uh, it's it's just scare package, not the scare package. Somebody dropped the the later on, but no, um, <laughs> no. Uh, in scare package, I believe that has that been on Shutter. Is that is that? Yeah, it's a Shutter original. We released like June eighteenth on Shutter. Yeah, yeah, yeah actually, yeah. I watched the uh, the uh, Joe Bob. Uh, the last drive-in uh, episode where he premiered that. Uh, that was a lot of fun. That was a surreal moment. Yeah. I bet. A, yeah. That was so, <laughs> I mean, growing up being a horror fan and I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies, um, but, but I got, I got, you know, we had TNT so I could mm-hmm. watch monster vision. Mm-hmm. And so Joe Bob was like kind of my education in horror. And I wrote him in that movie. Cause he, you know, spoilers, whatever. It's fine. It's been out. You should go watch it on shutter if you haven't, but he shows up in the film and I wrote him in the movie because uh, this was before he had had the shutter show, before the last drive and had come back, before any of that mm-hmm. stuff had happened, just because I, I love Joe Bob, you know, and I just thought it'd be fun. And then he had this resurgence and it kind of all kind of came together. But I mean, I directed the dude. I consider John a friend, John Bloom, mm-hmm. um, you know, a friend. But I got to say, on June 12th, when that premiered, and we weren't allowed to tell anybody, like I knew it was coming, we weren't allowed to tell anyone. But God, that night, seeing Joe Bob talk about the movie, say my name, and then to say, you know, four stars, Joe Bob says, check it out. I legitimately <laughs> got teary-eyed. I legitimately yeah, I, got teary-eyed. Yeah. I can't even imagine for like a, anyone that grew up on him getting a film on that on one of his shows and getting to hear the the drive-in totals. That was um, amazing. That's got to be like just one of those like, you know, highlights of of a career. If, the, if that's something, you know, if, if you were a fan of his, I know it would be for me because like you, I watch, I even watched him on the movie channel like. Yeah. Um, I remember as far back as when he was doing that and, uh, but yeah, no, that was a lot of fun watching that. And I think you and some other people maybe were tweeting that night. Um, yeah, I mean, we had, yeah. so I, I, so with that film, so my company made the whole film, I produced all of it. And then I wrote and directed the core segment and the mm-hmm. finale, which is about 40% or so of the movie, but the other filmmakers, you know, we brought together and we told them like, Hey, it's going to happen Friday, June 12th. Cause everybody thought the movie was premiering June 18th. Mm-hmm. So this was like a big surprise and no, nobody was allowed to know. So we were all prepared and I, yeah, I was tweeting all night about it. And my actual, my Twitter app actually crashed 
because so many people contacted me like, what the hell you're on the last drive-in? I mean, it was just <laughs> complete and utter chaos. And uh, yeah, I mean, it'll be, that's such a special night. Like that's now, now you know night. how, uh, now you know how Diana Prince feels every, uh, every Friday night when, <laughs> yeah, when her Twitter crashes. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, fun. And uh, that's uh, that's supposed to the come out on Blu-ray in October, right? Like October twentieth, I think. Something. Yeah. So yeah, Blu-ray DVD October twentieth, and it'll also be on regular VOD at that time as well, um, outside of Shutter. But uh, yeah, just time for Halloween, and we have a ton of like fun stuff. In fact, you guys will appreciate this. We did a commentary track for it, and and I think the way I phrased the commentary, I was like, "Look, guys, if we do this release, I want everything to be self-referential." And I think I, the name of the commentary track is you know, uh, filmmaker comment, commenting, uh, about on a film about other, that comments on other films better than this commentary track or something like that. It's like, oh, I can't remember, like, it's so convoluted. But I was like, the whole movie's convoluted. That's kind of the whole point. Um, and, uh, so it was a lot of fun to do. And then we've got, uh, bonus scenes and extra, there's a whole segment that wasn't in the movie and stuff too. Oh, that's cool. I'm I'm looking forward to checking that out. They, um, I mean, because that movie, I mean, that's one of those movies that was you could just tell the love that it was made with, um, from everybody involved. I mean, you guys knew the genre very well, loved the genre. Um, I really quite enjoyed Noah uh, Noah Segan's uh, segment in there. I know he got was that his directorial debut. It was, it was, yeah. yeah. Noah, Noah. So Noah has been a long, long time friend. Uh, we met on Starry Eyes, which I was a producer on, and. So kind of got to know him there. And we've always talked about, and he worked in, he was in camera obscura, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, he knew I was making this and he's like, Hey man, you should let me direct. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Like, I didn't know you direct, you know, I knew he was writing something, uh, but he's like, yeah, I want to do this. I have this idea. And he, uh, you know, yeah, he, him and this guy, Frank uh, Garcia Hell is this yeah. hilarious guy in um, from, from like the UCB scene and all that uh, comedian. And they wrote this like really great takedown on toxic masculinity, like mm-hmm. via werewolves. And uh, <laughs> I was just cracking up through the whole time. I mean, I wasn't able to be on set for that one, but my producer, Sean was, and he's just like, he was sending me stuff the whole time. He's like, dude, we can't even do takes. We're all laughing so much as this is going on, <laughs> which was the whole movie was like that. You know, I mean, yeah. the whole movie was just, because again, coming off camera obscura where you feel beaten down. You feel like my whole dream, you know, I left, I left a very lucrative career in the game, in like tech industry, you mm. know, and, and I left it to, to make movies and, you know, and I still don't make the money that I used to make in that industry, but yeah. that's okay. It doesn't matter because this is what I wanted to do. So to give everything up and, you know, like to put everything on the line and then make this first film and have it be so so many things were so troubling about that and difficult. And I didn't tell anybody for the longest time. I just, I thought that felt like an excuse, you know? So I just Mm kind of stayed quiet and just kind of, you know, wrote this. And my, my girlfriend at the time was like, you kind of sold your soul to the devil to make your first movie, didn't you? (laughs) But I'm like, Oh my God, I did. Didn't I? Um, And, and, and so, so coming off of that, it was, well, how do we just get back? We had made short films and had fun doing those. And I met all these short filmmakers and I was like, let's, let's just like scrape away everything. Let's do a hundred percent independent. Let's just get money from our friends. I put a lot of my personal money in. Let's just figure this shit out and, uh, and just do it and just, just throw, throw around as much blood as possible. Let's just cast the people that we love and, and just, you know, let it come from a place of heart and make fun of horror, but like bear hug it at the same time. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what it became. And it's, you know, 
it's it's so crazy just to see the response and it's been such it's been a huge hit on shutter and mm-hmm. um so yeah we're we're super excited and i feel really really lucky to have had that experience and so that sort of cleansed the palate and you were able to uh to uh look on the bright side again and you made the pale <laughs> door uh yeah from that uh i i find this uh this type of thing invigorating when you uh you take two different genres that you would never uh think of uh, as uh, go going together at all and then making uh making a movie like this uh you know obviously a lot of uh, from dust till dawn uh was uh was something that uh, came to mind during this film uh but you know combining westerns with witches uh <laughs> is uh is a is a fun is already a fun sort of gamut that you're doing here um uh where did you start on this did you did you go out and seek out to let's do some sort of genre mixing type of thing or did you say hey i want to do a movie about witches and it turned into a western or vice versa how did that come about yeah yeah well i mean first off we with my company paper street pictures like we try to make genre mashups like that's actually a goal of ours oh yeah is to take horror and mix them with other things so even camera obscura was like the psychological horror now that's been done a little more um but and then you know horror comedy's not done quite as much mm-hmm. so that was part of that appealed to us and then yeah horror western hadn't seen a lot of it at all and but that really kind of came about because i wanted to make i just love westerns and i wanted to make um a really dark brooding violent western like a modern violent western that just got you know i just thought, i thought the characters that you have in westerns and they were kind of like anti-hero sensibilities and they don't really know who to trust and like anybody can die at any moment and they're just they're outlaws but then they're kind of accepted into society there's just something that's really really, really great about what those characters can be and then what a gang of characters become. And I think when you get a gang of characters and you create these different personalities, that's just so fascinating to me. And I think there's a great, um, there's just a wonderful way to explore that as a writer. So so Cameron Burns and I, who's uh, my co-writer for everything I do pretty much, uh, you know, I was like, let's let's write this thing. So we wrote this Western. We were really into it. It was super pretentious and dark and brooding. It was called the play turn tragic. And uh, we were like, ooh, this is good. And then um, and then it sucked. It was like not a good script at all. We were like, oh, man, this does not work. Like this is, um, you know, it just it just kind of fell apart at the halfway point and or maybe even like the, a third of the way in. And so I kind of had it shelled for a long time. And then we were writing another story that was called uh, The Dark Day that kind of dealt with like a reimagining of the Salem witch trials. And like, what if like, you know, maybe some real magic came out of these like horrible people and like that was sitting there. And then uh, after doing Camera Obscura, which oddly enough was kind of a hit internationally um, Hmm. for them. And uh, they were like, hey, do you have, you know, another, you know, another project? We want to do something witch related right now. And Robert Eggers, the witch, had really done well. So, like, can you pitch us a witch thing? I was like, hell yeah. I was like, yeah, I got a witch story. Sure. <laughs> like, I got to come up with a witch story. Yeah. Um, so I was like, wait a second. Like, I know all this about the sandwich trials. I know this whole thing, you know, with this Western. Why don't we do this, like, West, witchy Western kind of idea? And we were like, oh, that's really, really cool. Pitch it to Universal. We're so excited. Got this nice little deck. It's all polished. It looks good. And immediately they're like, wait, what? Cowboys? What the? Huh? What is this? This is we just wanted we just wanted normal witches, Aaron. Like what is and I'm like, what the hell is a normal witch, guys? Like I don't even know what that means. Yeah, because uh, because Robert Eggers the witch is so normal. Like that's yeah, the, exactly yeah. like what yeah. the 
well, this is what happens in Hollywood, right? Like you go to, you go to these pitch meetings, you're like, we're looking for the next get out. And I'm like, no, you're not. If you were, if I had the next get out, you wouldn't even know what it was. Okay. That's the whole point here. So, you know, we're doing this. I'm like, that's fine. And don't get me wrong. These are wonderful people. Like, I don't want to speak it. Like, I love my relationship with Universal. They've been really great Mm -hmm. on that. Mm Um, and, and a lot of the problems that I had were actually not with them. Now there was some stuff that happened when they released it to their subsidiaries and what happened. But, um, but anyway, just wanted to give that caveat. Mm-hmm. So I had this, I had this kind of my back pocket. I had this idea of a witchy Western and then, you know, cuts you just, just a couple of years ago. And I got invited to go on a screenwriting panel, uh, in the middle of nowhere, Texas. It's like, um, Beaumont, Texas or something. And uh, they were like, yeah, well, we might, get, we're trying to get another big name on this, on the, on the, uh, the panel. I'm like, well, that makes sense. You got me, you need somebody good. So <laughs> they, uh, they're like, oh, we got Joe Lansdale and his son, Keith Lansdale. I'm wow. like, what the hell? I'm like, can I sit wow. in the crowd? Cause I don't think I should be on the panel with him. Uh, that doesn't make sense. And uh, they're like, no, 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 we want you there. Like, you know, cause I had sold, I've sold other screenplays and stuff. So they, they like, knew that I had some background in this. And I was like, all right, cool. You know, I, I'm so, I'm delighted. And I was there and and just had a great time with Joe and Keith and just talking. And I told that story of pitching this witchy Western uh, to Universal. And Joe like stops the middle of this of this interview. And and I still have the audio of this interview, which is like fun to listen to back now. And he's like, whoa, wait, what? Witches and cowboys? Like that, that's cool. That's a cool idea. And like I'm that's a horrible Joe impersonation. Joe, if you hear this, I apologize in advance. Um, <laughs> But, but, you know, he does his like East Texas way of doing it and it's so great. And uh, I'm like, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm, I was trying to make a sci-fi film. It's kind of like Cronenberg-y kind of, you know, sci-fi horror thing. And he's like, you should make that. that that's what you should be making. And then his son Keith's like, yeah. And then he's like, and then he completely derails the whole thing. He's like, what do you guys think? Shouldn't Aaron be making this movie? And then they're all like, yeah, you should make that. And they're all, I'm like, okay, well, I guess, I guess I should be making this. Uh, and we went to dinner that night and we talked about it. And I was like, well, you know, I wrote this Western and it had some problems. And I don't think that I'm good at some of the voices that I kind of wanted to tell. And, um, and he's like, well, let's, let's help you. And, uh, you know, and then Joe was so busy, he didn't really have time to be a full writer, but his son Keith became a full writer on it. And Joe was giving us notes. And next thing I knew, we had written The Pale Door. Um, and it happened really fast after that. Hmm. I mean, like, what's crazy too is literally the day, it was like April 20th of 2019, was the day that I was on, the, or excuse me, on 2018, was the day I was on the panel. And then on uh, April 20th, 2019, was the day that I left to drive to set to direct The Pale Door. So <laughs> totally crazy. Yeah. yeah. Totally crazy. Um, the title uh, comes from an Edgar Allan, uh, Edgar Allan Poe poem, uh, the haunted palace. Um, mm-hmm. Was this uh, something that you were sort of thinking about? Uh, before the story even came to fruition or was it something that was just sort of a happy coincidence or how does how does the Edgar Allan Poe poem fit into this other than just the title so it was so I have I have a book of Poe poems and I, I read it probably every couple of years and I go through and flip through it and uh, just kind of keep it as a coffee table book and had always, I love the Haunted Palace. I just thought it was a very haunting story. Um, mm-hmm. I guess that's apropos to say the Haunted Palace is a haunted story. But um, <laughs> yeah, but it but it's just just about this town that was no more, and the idea, like this idea of like laugh but smile no more. I thought it was like a really like creepy creepy term for this, and yeah, um, and a way of phrasing it, and just this idea of you know hiding behind these horrors and like not being the reality of what you see and kind of playing with your mind. And I just thought it was a really great poem. 
and then, uh, like I said, I, I like pretentious titles. So we, it was originally the play turn tragic, right. um, was that original idea, which was, that was just me playing around with stuff. I don't even know where that came from. <laughs> but, um, but th- so then I was going through, I was trying to think of a title and we'd had nothing, you know, it was just like, it was the witch, witchy Western, you know, it was like the working thing. Mm-hmm. And then as I was reading that, I was like, Whoa, the pale door, it's like the pale horse. Um, it kind of evokes a little Western mm-hmm. vibe, but then, but then this poem is so appropriate yeah. for the movie, you know, and what's there. So I didn't write it based on the poem or anything like that. It just it kind of, I realized like, oh, this is perfect. But I, I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about the titles and so kind of went down a rabbit hole of this. And, uh, when I found it, I was like, guys, it's the pale door. Like that's the name of this movie hundred percent. So, um, yeah, and it's, and it's again, I, I recommend everybody reading it. It's just a really, really creepy poem. So, yeah, I read it uh, actually earlier today because I was, I was, uh, I wanted to, to know more about it and everything. And, and uh, it is, I, it, it, I, I now, because of The Simpsons, have to read everything Edgar Allan Poe does in James Earl <laughs> Jones' voice. And, uh, and so like, uh, it's, it's amazing, like how that guy, I don't know if he has a style that has a name, you know, like Shakespeare has his own like style or whatever, but Edgar Allan Poe, like you can see how he writes. It's very, you know, similar in everything that he does. And there's this, this, uh, you know, this quality to it. That's uh, so much just him, you know? Um, oh, absolutely. And he's, he's just, he's a storyteller in his poems too. Like he has this great way of, of it's, it's little narrative movies in a way, you know, it's just, he sets up this idea and then he pulls the rug out from you. And it's usually in this like really insepid, dark, creepy way. And it's like, oh no, like what? And then it recontextualizes what you read before. And, uh, it's just, yeah, he's, I mean, modern genius, of course, like, you know, but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, and then once I realized we could tie this to Edgar Allan Poe, you know, and like, oh, this could be, and like, we should open with the quote. Um, it just, it just helped on so many levels. I just thought really kind of set the groundwork for what the kind of movie was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it turns out perfectly for what you, what you've made here. Um, uh, the, the, right after the, uh, genre mixing, you know, that, that wraps you up into it and everything, uh, the next thing that you notice is, man, there are so many people in this movie that I love. <laughs> uh, and, you know, you, you've gotten this, this, this just ridiculously awesome character actor cast of people that I've seen in the backgrounds, mainly of most movies. Uh, I, I guess, save for Melora Walters, who I've seen, uh, you know, in, in bigger roles and everything like that. It was great seeing Melora Walters in a role like this. Um, uh, Noah Segan, we have talked about before, and I, I definitely have a lot of questions about that dude, because I feel like <laughs> he's, I feel like uh, he's probably as uh, funny and cool offset than he, that he is in his characters that he plays uh, uh, on set. But Stan Shaw is another oh, guy I hadn't seen ever. And he's great. Hell yeah. Oh, I uh, love it. I love that You just, I just love, I, I love that. So good. Because, yeah. He's been great for so long mm-hmm. and I feel like Stan has been overlooked. And I mean, I look, I remembered in monster squad, he said such a great little part of monster squad mm-hmm. and like snake eyes and my mom. So my mom's, my mom's favorite movies is fried green tomatoes. Oh yeah. So, yeah. 
And I, you know, so I had to watch it so many goddamn times. It's fine. I mean, the movie's a good movie, but like, just as a kid, it's not my movie. A kid, no, I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the same boat as you. I had mm-hmm. to watch it a bunch because of my mother. <laughs> yeah, but I, but she, we would always, and I remember like my family boys, like that, that actor there, that guy, that Stan Shaw, he's a good actor. You know, mm-hmm. I remember people saying that, and I remember that as a kid. And so when it came up, you know, we were talking about who could play, and we had a list of people. And I went to my my casting director and was like, you know, I think Stan Shaw could kill this. I just think he's got, and he's also got this kind of like baritone voice. He comes from a a family of musicians and singers. He's a beautiful, he's amazing voice, Mm -hmm. but he can kind of, you know, I, it all was about the speech that happens in the church with Lester's character and Jake's character played by Devin Druid. And you know, culminating and knowing what I wanted that speech to be. And that speech was like so important to me that Mm -hmm. I was like, when he has to turn on the energy and he has to like show the pain and the history of that this guy's been through and what he's explaining the realities of the horror to this, to this young boy, like I've got to feel it. And when Stan Shaw talks, you fucking feel it. And, you know, and I love it. So yeah, he makes me so happy and just, he's God, man, he was such a joy to work with. Absolutely. I was going to add that you mentioned Monster Squad. Um, he has like one of my all time favorite line readings and it's from that movie. It's when he's he's uh, he's interviewing the uh, the guard at the beginning about the mummy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just everything about that scene is so perfect. But, you know, uh, but uh, he's he's so awesome. This cast is great. Um, I have to say, though, like if I was thinking of a casting a, a, like a modern day Western, Zachary Knighton would probably uh, not have been like someone I would have thought of, but uh, I I would have wished I had because he's pretty great in this. Um, yeah, yeah. Know, I knew him basically from Happy Endings. Um, <laughs> me too. Yeah, yeah. me too. Yeah. Well, I love that you brought that up. So, so because so Noah, uh, so Noah's one of my best friends. I've known Noah. We met on Starry Eyes. We've known each other for so long. And, uh, you know, he's like, I was, we were talking about different people. And, and originally it was the character of Dodd had a lot more comedic moments in. He had a lot of jokes. And there's still some jokes that stay um, in Dodd's side. And Noah and I were talking about people. And he's like, so his wife, Allison Bennett's a writer with uh, Fox right now in mm-hmm. FX. And they had a couple of shows. And Zachary Knighton was involved in a couple of those shows. And he had gotten to know him. And I uh, was like, you know who would be great is, is Zach. And I was like, really? Like, well, I love him in Happy Endings. And I, I really liked him in the Hitcher remake. Like, he was surprisingly good there. I thought oh, he was Oh, that's good. right. He was the male lead, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. look, whatever you think of the movie, him and yeah. Sean Bean are pretty damn good. Yeah, that. no, you're right. I forgot that was him. Yeah, so I was like, oh, my God, you're right. And uh, so he's like, you should talk to him and kind of kind of see what you think. And I was like, well, maybe he could work for Dodd, you know, who has these, like, comedic timing. Let him kind of lean into that, but then go sinister. And I love taking comedic actors and letting them do – darker mm-hmm. things so like the spur scene and all that i thought would be really cool with him um but then as we started kind of getting talking and we we're going through this he you know and i talked to zach about it he's like look everybody just wants me to be goddamn ross from friends and everything <laughs> and he's like i can do more i can do more you know and i really want to do this and he wanted to do a western he had married someone from Austin, so I had some other ties to him as well. And made this really, really a couple of really small Austin indie films where he just kind of, you know, showed up and and just was so sentimental. And I was like, whoa, this guy can do it. And so what ended up happening was we had this big search to find our Jake. Um, and and because that was gonna be huge and to find the right person to do that. And um, and I and I want to talk a lot about Devin Druid, but once we finally settled on De- Devin Druid, 
Um, and it's not settled. I mean, he was the guy. <laughs> Let's put it down. <laughs> he, was, he jumped off the page and it was like, it's Devin Druid. Um, and I was like, you know, crossing my fingers the whole time. Like, I hope he says yes. I hope he says yes. And we put the offer out and he did. But once we brought him on, I was looking at photos and he has the exact same, these like striking blue eyes as Zach Knight and the same nose and ears and mm-hmm. kind of like facial features. Mm-hmm. And I was like, he's Duncan. Like he should play Duncan and he should play his brother. And I went to Zach and I was like, hey, like I think there's an opportunity here. It's a little bit of a smaller part, but it's really poignant in what happens um, and how this works. And he was all on board and he reread the script and like thought about it. And I'm really glad he did because I think it works great. And then his, their dynamic is so amazing. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'm so proud of what they did. They're just so great together. Well, and then you get to bring Bill Sage in as Dodd. And I mean, yeah. he's perfect. Um, yeah. I had seen him, of course, on Happen Leonard. Was that how he kind of got involved? Was he through Lansdale or did you no. already know him? So, I mean, I, I knew that, you know, because he was even the voice in Cold in July and stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, Oh, that's you know, right. Because he's tied with Jim Mickle. So Jim Mickle, you oh, know, okay. is kind of tied to Lansdale. So that's kind of like an incestuous little trio that they have. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but I knew that, but no, Bill was just on my list. So, so actually what had happened was, the Dodd was being played by Clifton Collins. Um, oh, really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So Clifton and, I, Clifton and I spent, you know, hours and hours and hours talking about Dodd and all these different facets and what that was. And I was like, this is a cool dynamic. But then uh, Westworld came in and uh, Jonathan Nolan perfect uh, personally stopped us from casting Clifton Collins no. in the movie. <laughs> um, but I, and, and it was like, okay, well this, and I was like, well, what about Bill, Bill Sage? I'd always wanted Bill Sage and Clifton had kind of been early on as the guy. Um, that was brought forth. And I was like, what about Bill? Can we, this is mean I can actually go to Bill now because originally it was, they wanted to cast these bigger names and all this stuff and, you know, to get more financing. And then once we realized we weren't going to get the more money, I was like, well, I just want to cast the guys that I want, you know, and, and Clifton was somebody I wanted, don't get me wrong, but he was part of like a bigger cast at that time. And he was a remnant that was staying with us. But then uh, when Westworld, you know, shut that down and said, sorry, we can't do it. I was like, well, Bill Sage, like Bill Sage is perfect for this. And, <laughs> and I, I loved him in particular from we are what we are. Like that was the role where he's just, he played the the father in that and just, just, he's so brooding and menacing. Um, and he could, he could do so many different things. I mean, Bill's a chameleon, you know, like he's in, and I loved him in Happen Leonard as well. And I mean, he was even in Boiler Room and like all kinds of crazy stuff. Like Bill's just all over the place. Mm-hmm. And, and I love it. And I love that. I'm always surprised. I'm like, oh my God, that's Bill again. He's an American psycho. You know, he's in like, <laughs> like he does all this crazy shit. And um, once, once this all kind of happened, uh, David Guglielmo, my casting director is like, David, like, oh my God, let's do essentially, once I didn't have these parameters on anymore, I was like, let's, let's just do the Avengers of like indie genre actors, you know, <laughs> and just like go after like all these cool people that I know can do it and kill it. So that makes sense why Pat Healy's in there now. (laughs) Yeah, of course. I mean, if you're going to do that, I mean, he's, I mean, you know, I don't know which part he is, but uh, he's like the number one. He's, you know, the Bruce Banner of all this, right? (laughs) Exactly. You couldn't, you couldn't find Robert Wise. Come on now. (laughs) Does Pat Healy just come on set and be like, like, I know you guys are going to fuck with me at some point. So can you just go ahead and tell me what I have to do in this movie? Because I feel like he's always (laughs) having to like eat something weird or... Yeah. He's getting his head bashed in. <laughs> of course, of course. He, I mean, he's so good at it uh, yeah. too. I mean, so I met I met Pat also met through Starry Eyes and uh, had always wanted to work with him and, you know, wanted to find a way. We just couldn't find the timing on other projects. And with this, 
you know, some of it, I mean, God, first off, like what he did, like that guy built an entire dialect and like the way that he walks, his mannerisms and everything mm-hmm. to be Wiley, you know, just the way that he dresses, the, you know, we, we kind of got, we wanted a very, you know, kind of specific person to kind of play the strategic member of the gang. Cause the gang's loosely based on the Dalton gang, um, mm. the real Dalton gang from the 1890s. And, but we kind of took our own versions of them, but there was one member of that gang who was like all strategy and, and he was a former banker. And I was like, Ooh, that's an interesting character. And that kind of fit for Pat to kind of play this more put together piece, but then also to like, unwrap. and he had a little hint of maybe some religious undertones and stuff that could really, once the shit hits the fan to really let that occultic kind of pieces come in and usurp that as a character. And, and it was going to be a lot of fun. So, um, but, but I will say too, uh, I went to film school with Evan Katz, who made Cheap Thrills. Oh, wow. And Evan, Evan's a buddy and wonderful, wonderfully talented filmmaker. And I love Cheap Thrills so much. Mm-hmm. So once we had Pat, I was like, and he did the, the glass eating scene and what was happening. I was like, look, I want to do this. And we sat there and he does this moment. I'm like, oh my God, this is just like in Cheap Thrills where he's like, I did it. You know, <laughs> like holding up his hand. Was- and, uh, you know, he has PTSD from that movie. Um, oh, God. But, uh, no. Because well, no, in a wonderful way. It was just, yeah. it was just such a hard film to make. I, I and, can only imagine. Yeah, it was just a hard film to make, and uh, so I mean, I think him and Evan, like you know, I think they're not Evan, but uh, him and uh, uh, oh shit, uh, who played the the counterpart with him uh, from? Oh my god, why did I just? I just I lost the name. Ethan, Ethan Embry? Embry. Ethan Embry. Yeah. Uh, so him and Ethan Embry actually, I mean, I think they kind of almost came to blows. So when they're fighting, I think they're oh, almost wow. kind of fighting in, in cheap thrills. So. Um, <laughs> But, but yeah, I, he knew I was going to put him through the ringer, you know, and he knew that was going to happen and, you know, had a moment at the end where I'm like, Hey, I told my, my makeup people, uh, David Greathouse and Becky, and I'm like, can you give me, I kind of want Sam Neill at the end of event horizon here. You know, it's <laughs> uh, like, uh, what's so great too. In that scene, talk about just putting Pat through the ringer, uh, poor Pat, if you listen, I'm so sorry, but the night that this happened. So uh, not to spoil or whatever, but you know, I mean, he can't, let's just say he can't see the makeup that he has um, and all that's going on. But um, the lightning struck our generator that night Mm. and he was in makeup. It was hours and hours of makeup to get that done. And he literally can't see. And he's Mm. like drinking through straw shit and stuff and whatever. And, and he's like, Aaron, please tell me like, what the hell happened? Like, what is going on? Like, when can I do this scene? Like, Oh my God. And I'm like, so Pat, yeah, have a little um, snafu. You know, uh, it's going to take some time. And he's like squeezing my hand. And I'm like, I know, I know, we're hurrying. You know, (laughs) I felt so bad. Um, But he's such a trooper and was so amazing. And I'm so glad I finally got to work with him. He's just wonderful. And I said Robert Wise, and I meant Ray Wise, and I'm so sorry about that. Uh, just like that's who you should have. That should have been. That should have been the guy that rounded out your your Avengers independent cast is Ray Wise. But oh, um, we had too many characters already. But dear God, I would have loved to added Ray Wise into that set. No problem. Yeah. Trust me. Um, uh, so yeah, you were about you were about to talk about Devin Druid, who plays a character. I don't know if I've seen this. I'm sure there's been a million movies that have come out uh, set around the Western, the 1800s and everything like that. But his character is gay and you, I don't know if it's kind of a, an interesting situation scene when he admits that uh, not in so many words, but Mm -hmm. um, and everything uh, and Melora Walters uh, reaction to it and everything. 
what was the uh, impetus behind his character? What, what, how did you create him? Yeah, I mean, well, so much of this was, you know, as I was going through and watching all these old westerns and going through, like one of the things that were kind of frustrating for me actually was that the gangs were all these same, you know, white dudes Mm -hmm. all the time. But in reality, when you research these gangs, they had uh, a very diverse group of people, Hmm. and and you know, there were people who were former slaves that became gang members. There were women that were in gangs. Um, Native Americans were a big part of that. I wanted that's why I had Clifton in, in particular because I wanted to get um, you know a person like kind of like a Mexican heritage involved as well. So right. I thought there was an opportunity there. Um, so so that was part of that whole idea. And then I was like, well, why don't we just continue going with this? Like there were I had read a story. God, I, wonder, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but I had read a story that was about like this gay cowboy and, mm-hmm. and what it was like. And it was like this um, great grandson who told a story about his great grandfather and like what had happened. And he had this like secret relationship for so long and so many years. And it was like, you couldn't tell anyone, like nobody was allowed to know about this. And I was like, well, you know, let's explore that. And this is someone who can't tell people, mm-hmm. you know, cause it's not accepted, but, um, but also I didn't want it to be hokey. I didn't want it to be like, I think I wanted it to just to be, this is who this person is. And it's part of what makes him unique from everyone else. Yeah. And that he feels different from everyone else. And, and the weight of dealing with that. And I thought subtly layering in him being gay could be a, a big part of that. And then we also wanted to play with the innocence mm-hmm. of him being a virgin. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you know, and when I talked to some people, they were like, everybody was having sex when they were 13, you know, back then I'm like, okay, well, never mind. That's <laughs> weird. Um, so, <laughs> so they're like, there wouldn't be a virgin that's, you know, 19 years old. I'm like, well, well, maybe there would, if he was gay, you know, maybe right. there's something there, you know? And so there were ways to kind of play with that and kind of build in more of the plausibility of that and make that happen. And it just, um, and the way Devin played it. And I, I love that scene with Devin and Melora so much because she's, you know, that, that is the, we talked about that a lot of, there's that whole Hitchcock analogy about there's like the bomb that's under the table mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. and during a conversation, it makes that conversation so much more interesting. And I want that to be that. I want the, I want us to be ahead of the audience a little bit at this moment, you know, and like knowing like shit's about to happen and you just feel the tension and she's just toying with them. You know, yeah. I talk with Devin a lot um, about how you are just looking at these threads, these colored threads, and you have no idea what the pattern of the quilt is that's going on here, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're just trying to kind of figure this out and find your place. Um, And you want to impress your brother and you want to kind of be a part of something bigger and be more, but, uh, but you're just not like them. And there's something that's different and your brother doesn't want you to be like them, you know, but in that moment for the way that Melora plays it, the way she like leans back on her chair and her like mannerisms with her hand and, you know, and just like, Oh, you know, it's just like so yeah. good. Oh, yeah. she's so sinister. Like, is it's it so good? It's almost, it's weird to say this maybe, but I feel like this is one of her best performances I've ever seen her uh, in. Um, I, and and oh, it's God. not like I've seen tons and tons. I like, I know she's in a lot of things. Okay. Um, and, and, and before this, uh, you know, probably if you asked me, if you said Melora Walters, the first thing that comes to mind is Magnolia and she's fantastic Mm -hmm. in Magnolia. Um, uh, unfortunately, like, I think, I think a lot of that movie, everybody's sort of allowed to go super over the top and, and, and everything. And so like the performances are, are great, but like, you know, there's, there's just a, there's the slightest bit, if you could give me some of the slightest bit of control, here and this is what i'm getting from this performance here 
you know, she, I mean, she's, uh, she's playing this, you know, this witch who has a lot of, of, of like, you know, centuries of anger built up and, and everything. And, uh, and there's something very cool about her, like very seductive and very, uh, it's, it's, it's one of, it's one of the favorite, my favorite performances I've seen her. Oh, wow. Well, okay. Let's talk about Melora Walters for a second, because mm-hmm. this is my muse. Okay. My cinematic, <laughs> my cinematic idol is Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. Okay. He is, uh, so 1999, 19 years old. I go to see Magnolia three mm-hmm. hour and seven minute movie. Um, I'll preface by saying I have a Magnolia tattoo. This is how much that movie. Really? Means. Yeah. I'm obsessed with Magnolia. Magnolia, yeah, Boogie Nights and Great movie. Blood. No, I love it. Magnolia. I know that I make it, make it sound like I was disparaging it, but like, you know how every, like Julianne Moore has one of her most over the top. Oh my God. Oh, by the way, against Pat Healy. Yeah. That's yeah, Pat exactly. Healy in that moment. Oh my where she's God. Like, that's right. Yep, you know, you yes. can't mix those. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, and she's like, suck my dick to Pat Healy is one of my favorite lines ever, yep. Yep. ever. Um, and wow. Pat and I talked about that. So Pat's known for years, like how much Magnolia's meant to me. Mm-hmm. So I watched that movie and then her look at the end when John C. Riley comes to the edge of the bed, yeah. I'm getting chills just thinking about it. And she looks in the camera and her, and she has those tears in her eyes mm-hmm. and that, and she looks in the camera and then it cuts. And then that Amy man music starts to play. Yeah, I am. I was moved. I was completely moved. I sat there. My I was with my girlfriend at the time and three other friends. They left. I sat through the whole credits. I was crying. I didn't even know what I saw. I was like, "What the fuck was this movie?" Yeah, I didn't even know what I saw. I came out. They're like, "All right, Aaron, are you okay? Like, are you crying? Like, what's wrong with you?" And I'm like, "Guys, I don't know what just happened, but this movie is like, like, mess with me. Like, I I have to go watch it again." They're like, "That was three hours and seven minutes. What is Mm -hmm. wrong with you?" Or not like, like, what the hell? And um, and I'm like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I, you guys can go. And they were going to, we were going to go somewhere, go to dinner or something. I'm like, I literally went back in. I bought a ticket, waited like 20 minutes and I watched it again, back to back. That night, that night I decided I was going to go to film school. Oh, really? And yeah. So, so I wrote this part. Um, I don't like to use the same character names um, because I like to address, if I'm addressing Melora for Melora, I'm going to talk to her as Melora. If I'm addressing as Maria as a director, I'm going to talk to her as Maria. Mm -hmm. So I don't like to use the same names. But Melora and Maria just kind of, you know, merged together. That was, so I wrote it for her and I had, we had a a bunch of people who were really interested and all these names were thrown out at us. And I'm like, nope, Melora Walters. Mm -hmm. Nope, Melora Walters. I wrote her a letter and I told her, you know, I didn't tell her everything. I didn't want her to think I was crazy about how (laughs) obsessed I was and how much it meant to me. And then she got to set and then I was able to tell her and we formed this like bond since then. So to come full circle, and to bring her back, like kind of my film career is like one of those special things that you couldn't script. Wow. Um, and it's, it's amazing. And then another crazy tie. So not only did Pat Healy has a tie to Magnolia through that, but then Melora was in, played the mom in Cam on Netflix, the Netflix film. And the brother in Cam who had a bigger part and they had to kind of change it around was Devin Druid. Oh. <laughs> and so she played Devin Druid's mom in huh. that in that scene. So I wanted wow. that scene with them to be a very motherly thing. There's actually an Easter egg. Um, if and nobody would ever notice this unless I tell you, but if you watch, well, actually cinema sins might notice Jesus Christ, but, um, <laughs> maybe, but maybe. In, in the background, uh, if you were to pause when the kids are in the opening sequence, there's a chair with this very kind of distinct little knitted thing. It's a weird looking chair that sits there. And then when Devin sits down where Jake sits down with Maria, that chair, that exact chair is sitting behind him. And part of this was just to like that, 
what you're seeing was she was kind of creating an environment to make it feel homely. Like that's the lighting's very different in that scene. It's like very, it feels like you're in a home, you know, it mm-hmm. feels different than everything else. And it was to, cause witches can kind of play in, in this world of witches that I created can mm-hmm. kind of play with your perception of this reality. And there's, there's a lot of folklore with that. So I was like, let's just layer in subtle things to make it like, she calls him Jacob. Yeah. And when Jacob is what his mother calls him at the beginning and so there's just like things that we try to kind of like subtly tie and, and Melora just being this like unbelievably talented actress. And as much as, so, so like to hear that kind of made my heart pitter pat because it's like her part of Magnolia to me is so important. And even, I love, I mean, like, I mean, she's great in butterfly effect too, by the way, on a side yeah. note, like yeah. so good at butterfly effect. <laughs> right, the right. Movies, the movie's wacky. I love the original ending of that movie though, by the way. It's so fucking crazy. I'm not sure if I've seen the original ending. We we, re- we recently got to talk to uh, Eric Bress about uh, Butterfly Effect and his experiences on that. But uh, Oh, wow. Well, uh, the original ending. I don't ending, know if I've seen the original ending. So the actual original ending of Butterfly, or maybe it's the alternate ending of Butterfly Effect, is because he keeps like going back in time, back in time. Mm-hmm. He actually goes to the womb of his mother and then strangles himself with his umbilical cord. While oh, wait a minute. Oh, that man. was the one that I saw. Wait a minute. Okay. That I thought for some reason I saw, uh, I saw, okay. Okay. I did see that ending. <laughs> All right. There you go. Yeah. That's a great. That's ending. So wild. That's so wild. Like yeah. that's so ridiculous. But, uh, but yeah, she's, she drives that movie, you know, her, she's the emotional core of that film. And, so yeah, Melora, but I do, I will say, I mean, I think she's magical in this film. I know I'm biased, but I do think she's great because she's playing so many layers mm-hmm. of what's kind of going on because it was important to me that this was not a black and white story. This was not good versus evil. This is a mixture of, and I wanted to parallel her story and the origin of the the ire and the hate and and the violence to the origin of these brothers. Mm-hmm. And that, and that violence creates more violence and hate that get, you know, creates hate. You know, I, I love the, uh, it, I love stories like that. Like I, I sit here, I, I, that's my main thing. When I watch movies, I'll, a lot of times I'll do that whole thing. Well, did this actor appear with this actor in this movie and so on? Is this a reunion of some sort? Uh, that type of thing. And that was what uh, I was saying. Like the, the one that kept going through my head was Magnolia because of the Pat Healy, Melora Walters, Thing. And I was like, I don't know, because sometimes, you know, it's just sometimes it's a coincidence. Um, but in this case, it seems like you're a true Magnolia fan and uh, you you cast those people based on uh, knowing them before. Yes, which is funny to say Magnolia fan, because I remember the Kevin Smith film, <laughs> that, Magnolia you know, fan. Exactly when I said that, <laughs> yeah. I was like, hey, if you're a Jay and Silent Bob person, then you know. <laughs> which yeah. is so, well, and when that happened, so when that joke happened, I can't tell you how many of my friends were like, oh, Magnolia fan. I pointed at me like that was me. So, yeah, yeah, that's a funny thing. Yeah, Yeah. I I mean, I I was, too. So, I mean, I I understand where people come from when they say it's all it's super pretentious and all that. But but it's one of the most creative things ever put on film for me. So, like, you know, I honestly think it's still my favorite uh, Paul Thomas Anderson film, even though, I mean, I have mad respect for stuff he's done since then. But Mm -hmm. uh, he's never quite captured that energy for me for me yeah uh, he'll tell you that too he'll say yeah. the same thing you know that this was such a weird time in his life and, and, and it'd be hard for him to recreate it. he was so coked out with fiona apple and stuff and all that so like <laughs> i think it's like a wow. weird time period you know for what that was <laughs> he locked himself in a cabin you know listening to amy man music he thought there was a snake outside his 
cabin the whole time. So he wouldn't leave. And he kept writing at this frenetic pace. And, you know, I remember he told it. Yeah. I remember he told a story in some interview where like when he was with Fiona Apple, she would just leave these journals like everywhere where <laughs> she would write all this stuff down. And he just said it was just insane because he would just be like he would keep like stubbing his toe and stuff on these journals. And then he would read them and then he would get inspired, you know, and. Yeah, I mean, they they had a really interesting collaborative yeah. relationship. She actually made the so Melora, who's an artist, she made a lot of the art that's in the movie, and especially that's at Claudia Gator, her character's house. But the the one piece of art that was like this mixed media thing where the, the but it did happen when the right. frogs are falling, that was actually something made by Fiona. Yeah. Oh really? Oh, wow. I did not yeah. know that. Um, I I I mean, I, I was going to ask you because. Because when I see somebody like Noah Segan who continually works with someone like you and works with Ryan Johnson all the time, uh, there's there's got to be something sort of special about that guy, right? Like, I know that he's your buddy and everything, but is, is he as cool as I think he is offset? <laughs> <laughs> oh god i don't want to answer this question in hopes that noah sees it okay and listens to it well no no just because because i don't want it to get to his head right because um, okay. he, he is like <laughs> noah is genuinely like one of the coolest people that i know and i can't take it yeah um, yeah i mean he jokes about you know being like warren oates and all this and he loves these like 70 stars and all that and he's just got like there's just something about noah there's like a little interesting swagger that he has that's just a lot of fun and he's but one of the things about noah too is He's so he's so smart and articulate and affable. Like he can play these really goofy characters. Like I wrote Truman for Noah specifically mm-hmm. because I, I knew I wanted the kind of goofy, you know, drunk in the gang in a way, you know, what that could be. And uh, and I know he I mean, he could play, you know, anything, you know, I mean, he can go dead girl dark and he can do this, you know, very easily. Yeah. Um, but I there was something about his character in Looper. I love the kid blue character in Looper. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why don't we lean a little bit into that, you know, in some ways and some of those kind of aspects. And it's great. He got to do the gun twirls. He's like, hey, you know, Ryan and Looper paid for all that gun stuff. Like, let's do the gun trolls. <laughs> I'm like, great. Yeah, let's do them. You know, um, but no, Noah's, Noah's the best. And I love him and his, his wife, his little family's created now. And I've uh, known him for years and he's just a joy. I mean, I, I want to, you know, either kill or work with Noah and everything I do. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. His character is the one that is like, well, they did say brothel. And I remember, <laughs> I remember when he says stuff like that, I'm always like that. I mean, I don't know him, but that just, that seems like something he would say. Like it fits with him. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it is kind of, I mean, it's, it's, I got to the point where I know him. So I know what he would yeah. say. So I feel like he probably would have improvised that line, but it was yeah. written knowing that Noah would probably say that line. <laughs> so he, he, yeah. he steals these little moments from a huge cast and knives out. Like it's just, just the being, yes. Just kind of, <laughs> yeah. you know, just kind of, kind of goofy and whatever, and it's just kind of, uh, you know, it, he's just a fun dude to watch and everything. And I, and I, seeing that how he is on both of you guys' projects all the time, I'm like, this guy must be a dream to work with uh, to keep coming back to him every time. That's a lot he, too. The fact that he's one of the most memorable people in Knives Out, uh, I think that that says quite a bit about him as an actor and a performer. Yeah. yeah, no, it does. Yeah, no. And I, my favorite part of that is when they're talking about the uh, the books that he's written in the past, the crime stories, and somebody interrupts him. He's like, no, 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 let him finish. Let him finish. Like, <laughs> like he's so geeking out over that guy. Um, but that's, I mean, him and Ryan are, are very close as well. And uh, like, like truly like best friends, like they go everywhere together and everything. Mm-hmm. And 
So Ryan, like he's just become, his dad jokes are just like incessant <laughs> all the time. <laughs> so I clearly he's, they've, they wrote that in and like, let him kind of go with that and have a lot of fun. So yeah, it's, um, you know, and, and that's, that's, you know, you make, you make movies with these people and you find these like-minded folks and you're like, we're just alike, you know, we kind of like have the same sense of humor, the same kind of like ideas and you start to understand their voices. Mm-hmm. And then, and then you get to do an ensemble like this. You're like, Ooh, Ooh, okay. Yeah. Like I know how I could picture Pat being, um, you know, I know how, like what I want Da to be and what Bill Sage could do. And I know what Noah can do so well. And, and then I got to, and Zach came on early, you know, so I got to work with Zach a lot too and talk about his character. So like we were able to kind of curate that in a fun way. And you just, you, and then, cause I, I'm really big on, I'm writing up until the night before we're shooting. Like we're changing stuff. We're like looking, I'm feeling things out. I, I asked the actors to tell me like, what, what do you like in this moment? Like, does this feel as natural to you? Or how would you want to rephrase this? And how would you want to do this? And um, a great example of that was uh, Bill Sage, again, who's phenomenal. He had a really emotional moment uh, toward the end with him and Jake. Mm-hmm. And that scene, we were kind of, we had written it and he was like, you know what? I feel like less is more here. And like, I feel like we should do this and this. And he, him and I were kind of like going back and forth and talking about it. And that was day of, we rewrote that scene and it became what it is. And it's so good. I'm mm-hmm. so proud of it. And then what I ended up doing too in that scene was we decided to, Originally, it was a bigger conversation between him and Jake. And I was like, well, let's let Jake, let's let the weight of everything that's happened kind of like wash over him. And we actually ended up removing all dialogue from him in that scene. Hmm. Um, and he does it all just with his looks. And and if you go back and rewatch it, there's like these subtle moments that are happening. And what I wanted to do was connect these characters because they're Jake's always wearing white and Dodd's always wearing black. Mm-hmm. And early in the film, there's a moment where Jake's innocence is being shown and Dodd's sinister nature is being shown where he's with the spur with the, you know, the Pinkerton and Jake runs into the other Pinkerton who's injured and he can't, he can't pull the trigger. Right. And those are, and we cross cut those deliberately, which was an idea from my editor, Greg McLennan, which was, I thought genius. And we cross cut those two. So that way they start on these opposite ends of the spectrum and they slowly start to come together. And the moment where Dodd really starts to understand Jake, there's a couple moments where like Jake's like, I got to go back into the brothel kind of thing. And Dodd's like, look at the kid, you know, he's gaining his respect. But then there's a moment where Lester and Jake are talking and and you see Dodd in the background. He knows the truth because maybe, you know, we don't hear all of his doubt. He says he was raised in a brothel. You don't know his whole story, but he clearly has a conflicted relationship with his family. So when he sees that truth and you see him lower his head in front of the pew in the background, I was like, ooh, now when when Dodd starts to tell his story and he talks about losing, you know, what it's like to go through this familial drama, and then Jake turns and he kind of lowers his head and it just, it brings them together to kind of come out for the finale. And that was like a, you know, you have to curate that. You have to like, and you have to have actors that can pull that off because it's kind of ambitious to like, because all those beats have to work. You know, the yeah. moment with Jake and his brother, like that sentimentality has to work and Lester and him have to work and all this. Otherwise, if you get lost in one of those steps along the way, it starts to crumble and you just have to have actors that are able to kind of pull that off. And, and they did that. Well, and I feel like it's got to be kind of a challenge because I mean, you're already dealing with the challenge of mashing up genres, which it, it would is hard, right? Because you've got to kind of keep both sensibilities working, you know, against each other and for each other. And then on top of that, you've, you're also adding in these uh, rather dramatic scenes that you normally wouldn't find in either one of these types of movies. Um, yeah, no, that's that's a. I'm glad you brought that up because I think playing with tone. Mm-hmm. So that was something that I think I struggled with more on Camera Obscura was my tone. 
and playing with how to balance that because there was kind of this weird dark humor that I wanted to have, but it's also a very serious movie. Then there's like this completely comedic moment, you know, kind of with the hardware guy and stuff. And I was like, and I think I massaged that as well as I could. (laughs) Hardware, Um, the hardware thing is, uh, it is a funny scene. It is. Funny. I love that scene. Yeah. I think it's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that scene. It's so much fun. Actually, the mu- the music to that scene is called Frank and Nada, which is my homage, you know, to, uh, to, um, uh, oh shit. Carpenters, they live. The oh fight yeah, scene yeah, they yeah, live. yeah. The fight scene that never ends. So we like named it after that even, but actually, and then that character and that is the lead character in scare package. Oh really? Um, yeah. So, so quite quick aside here. Uh, there's actually a whole cinematic universe <laughs> that exists. So <laughs> that guy's character's name is uh, Tad Buckley, who owns Tad's Hardware in Camera Obscura. Yeah. And then in Scare Package, there's a man named Chad Buckley, uh, <laughs> played by the same person. And he actually, there's a moment, we do a commercial for it, where he's like, well, I got all my brother's murder settlement money. And that's how <laughs> I got this video store that nobody will get. And that was his brother gets murdered. So he gets a settlement money in Camera Obscura. So he gets a settlement money. But then in Tad's Hardware, we did a commercial there. And he talks about his great grandpappy, Bill Buckley. Well, his great grandpappy, Bill Buckley in the shootout is the guy who gets shot in the shootout. And that's Bill Buckley. So he's like, and he plays, so it's the same character. So we have, that's Jeremy King. And he plays all of those. And my end game is just to kill Jeremy King in every movie. And then, and then 10 years from now, I'm going to make a mockumentary called the Buckley Chronicles and it's all going to come together. So I did not. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Chris. No, it sounds like, uh, you're you have a lot of fun on the just on the outside of uh i mean just aside from just making the movie itself the actual creation of the movie and a world uh around it is has got to be pretty fun on its own if you're not enjoying this you're in the wrong i mean because here's the deal the movie business is so damn hard and it just kicks you in the ass all the time if you can't enjoy the good stuff and have fun with it you're doing it wrong you're in the wrong business. Mm-hmm. So my whole thing is don't let the lows get too low and then celebrate the hell out of the highs. Yeah. And when things are good, embrace it and have fun, work with people you love. And that was, you know, part of a learning experience at Kim Obscura. And now it's become something that's really, really special, you know, and these last two movies, you know, have just been such a, I mean, The Pale Door was the easily the most difficult film I've ever made just from the elements and category five tornadoes, hail, flooding. Oh, geez. Yeah, everything that could go wrong. Murphy's Law was a dick on that movie, um, but uh, but it's still. But we but because we were working with all these people that like loved each other and were willing to go to kind of like go to battle together, it makes it all worth it. You know, you're willing to like figure out you know how to how to make these things work when when shit hits the fan and things are not going the way it is and you know, you're flooding through and you have to move you know sets and you're losing a day because of shooting and you build a blood pit and we were going to put actors in that blood pit in the movie. And then it, it, we were going to, you know, line it and everything and do it all safely. And we had this whole process of doing it. We dug it out. And then that night it flooded. Mm. <laughs> so then the blood pit's covered. And then we're like, okay, well not, can we line it? We're like, no, it's not really safe. I'm like, okay, well let's, let's still find a way to line it and make it work. But then snakes had gotten in there. Oh, so we're God. like, oh, we can't put the actors in there now, but I had already shot the end of the movie and people are covered in blood. Mm-hmm. so I had to find a way. So then we like, okay, so like the day before we decide to let's, let's rain blood and like, let that tie into the witches and all oh, that. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's just indie filmmaking, you know, and you just have to roll with those punches. And like Roman Dent is 
uh, one of my producers is like out there with Cameron Burns and everybody in the, and Ashley, and they're trying to find, you know, all the food coloring in the entire tri-county area in this o- small Oklahoma city, like, you know, <laughs> so like fill a water truck filled with red blood. I mean, it was, it was an ordeal, but, um, but if you're working with the people that you love and you're working with people that are like-minded and you're having fun when, when the tough things are in the good parts, it makes the tough parts able to be bearable. Yeah. You know, and you're you kind of pushed through them together. What was it? Um, I am curious what it was like working with the Lansdales. I don't, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge Joe Lan, our Lansdale fan. I've read a lot of his books. Um, I don't know much about uh, his son. I don't, is he written some books too or screenplays or? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, God, the, the apple doesn't fall, fall far from the tree there. Yeah. Keith is so talented. So he's written an X-Files comic, something with like a Batman thing. He's written. Oh, a couple, you a know what? I have plays. totally read some of his stuff. I know what you're talking about now. Yeah. yeah. Didn't put two and two together. He also wrote uh, a creep show episode um, mm-hmm. with his dad, one of the new series. Um, so no, Keith is unbelievably talented and is going to be a massive writer as well. Already kind of is, you know, working his way up. And so they're, they're wonderful. You know, they just, they have, they just have an approach to things that's different. Um, we work very differently um, in the way that we did it, but, but cause Cameron Burns and I are, you know, we're kind of, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I do kind of the majority of like the story and the outline. And then I give a script to Cam and he kind of, makes it kind of feasibly happen and kind of like massages it in the right ways. And I'm more like macro ideas. And then Keith kind of comes in and we're like, Keith, do whatever you want. You know, like we, (laughs) here's the things we're struggling with, with these characters, these beats. Um, And the ending was a big, a big thing. And we, back to your point about tonally and how to balance this, it was, you know, to have this film and to go as crazy as it does and do some of the set pieces that we have and the absurdity that's there um, and do that in a really dark way, but then still have this very sentimental tone that is really about these two brothers and this journey and 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 it, of their kind of, you know, this like idea of letting go of this hate that's in your life that's kind of like created this world that maybe you didn't want to have for yourself and how to make that work. And Keith was integral in making that happen because I went even darker as an ending, a very, very dark ending. And Keith's like, look, you have all the groundwork here for this. Like, take this moment. Let's just like go a little further with it. And uh, I actually fought with him at first. I was like, no, 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 this is so cool. And and then I I slept on it and I thought about it. I was like, whoa, no, this is so much better. Like, this absolutely works. And he was such a such a great part in making that happen. But I wish, um, you know, Joe Joe's notes were impeccable and had so mm-hmm. many great little ideas and all this. And um, yeah, it was a joy. We're, we're hoping to do more projects together in the future. Oh, that's cool. I was going to say, I don't, I know I've heard rumors about different variations on adaptations of Joe Lansdale's The Drive-In. <laughs> uh, I, you would be a perfect direct. I don't know if you have any interest in that, but I'm just saying like, I don't, your sense of like the way the watching something like The Pale Door just made me think like you would, you would nail something like The Drive-In. <laughs> I am 100% going to take that little tidbit. I'm going to record it. I'm going to send it to, to an agent and people. Please do. My dream, my dream is to make the drive. Oh. That is what I want to do. That of all of Joe's books, I it's my favorite of his. I think it's amazing. Yes, it's been tied around. There are potential rights. It's just such a what? big, big Was scope. there going to be a musical? Am I? Is that right? Oh my God. I don't even, so all the stories I've heard, even Joe will be like, I don't even know. Yeah. Like there were so many iterations, um, but it was, God, who was the last person to have it? It was, I think it was with the walking dead dude um, was the last person. That, that, had that it. sounds right. Uh, Nick yeah, but Kirkman or, oh, or, Kirkman, or it was Kirkman. Kirkman. I think it was Kirkman. I don't, I honestly, or maybe it was Nick Atero. I, you know what? 
again, it all blurs together. So many different people have had variations mm-hmm. of it. Um, I know, you know, studios have circled it for a long time, but if I'm going to do a studio film, I want to do the drive-in. I mean, I think it's so, so it's so ripe. I think it's perfect to be made now. I think it could be such a cool grindhouse, like just, I love it. I love that. So yeah, for all the ones you just say, the drive-in would be the dream one to do. So I'm going to take that recording <laughs> and I'm going to use it to endorse me to direct the drive-in. It works. Hundred um, <laughs> percent. There are a couple of other actors I want to get into, and then we'll. Uh, and I also want to talk about the music in this film too. But oh, great. Um, but uh, just to round it out here of uh, all the main players, Tina Parker, who people yeah. will know from uh, Breaking Bad and uh, Better Call Saul as Francesca, the secretary that Bob Odenkirk uses. Uh, she's fantastic in this. This was somebody at first I was like, who is that? I know I've seen her before. Mm-hmm. I don't know who it is. And then I looked her up. I was like, Oh yeah, I'm stupid. And she's in breaking bad and everything like that. <laughs> uh, she's uh, she's fantastic. That's a, that's a great little supporting role there. Love her. And uh, Tina, Tina's amazing. Yes. Tina is absolutely wonderful. And in fact, uh, I was sent a tape from Tina. So she's a Dallas based actress. And I was sent a a tape from our local casting director and we were talking about going to some different names and stuff. And then I was just watching and I watched her. I didn't, and I didn't realize that it was her from Breaking Bad either. Mm -hmm. I just saw her take on it and I was like, that's Brenda. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, this is Brenda. And I was like, why do I recognize her from? And I'm like, oh my God, better call Saul. (laughs) I was blown away. I couldn't believe it. And uh, yeah, Tina's amazing. And just to have that kind of like fun you know, kind of comedic timing as well. And I love like we, her, her and uh, Bill Sage uh, with Dodd, we had so much fun together. They, I wanted to build this little subtle sexual chemistry. Like I told them both, I was like, here's the deal. You both have totally done it, but you're not, you don't want anybody else to know that you've done it, you know? Yeah. Cause Dodd <laughs> so, likes it dirty. Right. So yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, it, actually there's a scene that was cut. Um, that was, that was later. There's another thing. And uh, somebody re- makes a reference to like, like, like there's another, like a dirty kind of reference. And then Tina like kind of winks um, and that scene got cut, but, uh, but yeah, no, that's definitely it. Um, and, and Natasha Bassett. Um, yeah. I, I feel like I had seen her before and I, 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 I guess I have, she was in hail Caesar, but I'm not sure if I've seen mm-hmm. her in anything else. Um, but she's got this sort of angelic quality and like the sort of, she she puts you in a trance there's something about the way she sort of just like looks at everybody throughout this whole thing once the like the whole seduction of getting you into the town and everything starts that's just eerie and everything and uh, i just wondered sort of how you found her and how she got cast as well no that's i mean you you nailed it you absolutely nailed it because that's what I wanted. So my whole thing with Pearl for the, for that role, when I talked to David, it was like, we're casting for eyes, you know? And I even said, I want somebody who looks like their eyes look like they're, they're like, you know, roll on applicators of mm-hmm. uh, deodorant, yeah. you know, that just can kind of like move, that kind of feel like there's something that's there. And when I saw Natasha, just even her headshot, I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I hope that she has this because if she does, she's perfect because mm-hmm. I wanted someone that could kind of evoke the innocence and have something that's there. But then, have this kind of like 
like she's in control, like she's like learning this whole world. And there's, you know, there's a little subtle hints, you know, for like why she's there and what's going on and was she meant to be captured or not, or who had it or what. And, you know, cause she, when she goes to Melora or to Maria, you know, when they get there, it's like, you know, it's like, it's her birthday. It's like, did you like your present? You know, and stuff like that. And there's, yeah. So there's a lot of things where she's kind of in this like beautiful world and taking it all in and trying to figure out what her powers are or aren't yeah. in that place. And um, like, even like she has a lot of bruises when she's in the box, but when she gets to the town, her bruises are completely gone, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and subtle things like that, that we kind of layer in. But but I cast Natasha for her eyes and what she could do looking around a room and just kind of like bringing you in. And she's so beautiful, but had this sinister kind of undertone to her. And I thought it played off really, really well with what I knew, you know, Melora would be doing as Maria. So it was like finding that balance. But yes, the eyes, like that's yeah. it. That's what it was all about. Very stark, like just very memorable in the in that sort of uh, exactly what whatever effect that you wanted there, you got it. Um, the uh, Yeah, I was going to talk about the composer. You, Alex Cuervo is your composer on this. And there's uh, there are some some uh, there's some score in here that I really like because there was I, I can't remember. I think it's uh there's a fight or something going on in the saloon. Of course, there's a lot of fights going on in the saloon at some point. But, uh, <laughs> but there's a there's like a western tinged electronic score mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. that's going on in there, and I just was like, oh my gosh, this is really cool. This is like I'm like, did he did they get somebody like like really well known for this? And and this guy is not very well known, but I get the sense that we will know him uh, in the few in next few years. He's a superstar. Alex Cuervo is a superstar. And uh, he, so he's done, he's been scoring uh, most of my work. I, I couldn't work with him on camera obscure because I w- couldn't work with all the people I wanted to work with on that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I got Steve Moore, who's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> so that yeah. was great. Um, but, uh, but no, Alex did, he did scare package as well. And so we had a unique challenge. So I wanted to do, my whole thing was, I was like, well, let's have this, uh, like kind of because Morricone, people think of like the big pastiche Morricone scores, mm-hmm. but he does a lot of these subtle kind of brooding Morricone stuff, like in the mission where he uses weird instruments. Yeah. Um, and and then his his score on the thing. The thing, um, the yeah. Kind of, Which is always and, trips me out every time I pop in the thing and I see his name on the on the composer. It's like, what really? It's not Carpenter. It's Morricone doing a Carpenter, and it's awesome. Well, and it's so great. So, like that was such a big aspect of this. But then we wanted, we also challenged ourselves. We used all organic instruments. So, I mean, we used the piano. That was the only other thing that was there. But like, uh, I mean, we had the horn. We had a horn that we used that was a femur bone that Alex was like blowing into a femur bone to make. Oh, really? Um, all the clicky clacky kind of sounds are antlers, like different types of antlers that he's huh. like striking together. Um, the, uh, the big bassy stuff that sounds like it's more electronic is actually a bass harmonica that is this like, and it's like five feet, like large. It's just massive oversized harmonica bass. (laughs) And it makes this really low drony kind of feel. Mm -hmm. So yeah, everything, I mean, even our guitar was a biscuit tin guitar that was made. (laughs) Um, the violin stuff was on barbed wire. Uh, so (laughs) It was, you know, we just, we just really wanted to go at it. And I knew like Alex is a good friend of mine and I know his sensibilities. He's obsessed with witch stuff. Um, In fact, the opening credit stuff that has all this witch iconography in the credits, um, all of that are like drawings that he personally had. Oh (laughs) yeah. 
kept over the years and like, you know, um, some of them were like 1800s drawings and stuff, but he just like had this collection of them. He's like, oh, you need witch shit? Yeah, here, dude. Here's a file of like a like a gigabyte of just like witch shit. I'm like, oh my God. Um, so I knew that he had this in him, you know, and he mainly does electronic stuff um, in other aspects. Like the Scare Factor score is very you know, Carpenter-esque electronic score. But I was like, let's just like, let's like decompose this. Let's break this down um, and do this kind of thing with like a hint of like a Philip Glass or a Max Richter, Hans Zimmer, SS, you know, kind of aspects. Yeah. But just all with, um, I mean, our cello was a shipping box, you know? Like, I mean, everything was just find unique ways because it gave, it gave unique sounds to the instruments and it made it feel of era while still being modern, still modernize it in the way that we did it. Uh, I'm obsessed with the score. It's being released on Lakeshore Records. Yeah, um, Lake Lakeshore. Like they're so excited. They were like, "Hey, we're gonna put this up for a Grammy." And I'm like, "Fuck, okay, great." Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, well, I mean, that won't happen. But still, you know, it's just it's you know, I, I'm I'm super super, and I, I'm I'm someone who too. I mean, I used to collect film scores as a kid. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. like film scores are such a huge deal to me. So you know, and he scored the hell out of this. I mean, like the whole movie scored. Yeah, I mean, there's like, there's not a lot of like quiet. I mean, there's quiet moments, but even the quiet moments have subtle, subtle score going on. So yeah, I'm super proud of the score. Alex killed it, and I think he's going to be a superstar. There are he there is. are people, uh, you know, on the Sincast who are more musically inclined than I am. I'm, I'm, you know, I, a lot of times I'll watch a movie and I'll, I'll kind of notice a score here and there, but it's usually got to be something that's really just stand out before I, mm-hmm. before I do it, because most, I, I feel like, and I could be completely wrong and composers do so many movies in a year that not all of them are like their best scores. You know, they're doing something that's, that's good enough for the film. Um, and whenever I notice a score, I'm like, Whoa, wait a minute. This is really, <laughs> really good. What, who did this? And I have to know, you know, and I, um, I'm, uh, I'm I'm glad that uh, this is a, a superstar in waiting. I'll, I'll I'll be waiting to see in the next few years uh, seeing his name on a lot of movies. Well, look if we can get the drive-in done, he'll be yeah. scoring the drive-in. So oh know. yeah, that's uh, right. Yeah, he'll do he'll do whatever I do. We so, were just uh, making an announcement here that the drive-in will be directed by Aaron B. Koontz <laughs> and uh, Alex Cuervo is composing it. And uh, I'm glad that we could uh, we could force that through. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know we're we've we've got awesome power here at the Sincast. Um, amazing amazing <laughs> I, i'm indebted for life let's do it special um, thanks in the credits Syncast. uh jonathan do you have any more questions for aaron um no i think you i think you i think we've covered the gamut with the cast and the score and everything it was just it was a really fun movie man i had i had a blast um yeah. i had a blast with scare package too i i think both of these were really fun you've uh you've clearly got a love for the for the different genres and um and that's not always a great thing I've noticed <laughs> with some, with yeah. some filmmakers, but uh, you you definitely make it work. So I, I really had a fun with this movie. Oh no, thank you so much. And yeah, I mean we're you know our whole thing is to challenge ourselves to make things that we haven't seen a lot of. So like one of the things we're working on now is uh, so it's going to be horror. We're going to have horror as like the, the starting point for whatever mm-hmm. it is we're doing. Uh, I was like, well, what have I never seen before? So I was like, well, I've never seen a horror sports movie. So mm. we're making mm. we're making a movie called we're writing it out called Demon Derby. That's a, a horror comedy sports movie. Oh my god! Um, and uh, it's kind of like uh, Glow meets Evil Dead Two or something. Oh my god! Um, 
but it's all done with like we're gonna you know rocky style kind of beats so you know it's gonna have like the it's gonna be full of montages like so many montages um, <laughs> and uh but culminate in this kind of like sp- the way the sports movie arc is so we do that you know and it'll still be sentimental it'll still have that rising you know like against the odds kind of thing but mm-hmm. done played seriously as a sports movie but then also be this completely over the top horror comedy I, uh, uh, within I'm- it so, definitely yeah. would love I, to see that yeah i can't think of anything right i mean like there's been like you know like you've got like slasher films that are set like with like you've got graduation days or you know track and field team and mm-hmm. and fatal games speaking of which though if you can bring back the uh javelin speared football from uh oh. graduation day i think that would be a plus <laughs> so so on scare package we talked about it i wanted yeah, that to did. happen yeah um when they did the kills with the, the werewolves but uh oh, you know, unfortunately cool. i wasn't there but yeah no it's uh uh no i would love to do that and yeah just the <laughs> idea of like the sports arc the tropes of a sports movie like tone in that yeah. done in that framework but then against you know like this demonic roller derby team that becomes like, beyond <laughs> thunderdome you know like, at the end. like so yeah so i mean that's what's fun and we just want to make, you know, fun movies, um, you know, and, and, and in different aspects. I think I, I hopefully the pill door is fun. And I know I know scare package is fun. I know that because it's just like you, it's hard not to smile, you know, at least even if even if meta horror is not your thing, it's like hard not to at least smile what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and pill door is a very, you know, again, it's a very serious movie, but we want it to be an enjoyable ride. You know, and I think um, I think there's something there. So as long as we're making fun, you know, having fun with uh, the horror genre, we're going to continue doing it. And the drive-in's a perfect fit for that. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, that's I mean, that's what I'm saying after watching those two movies and then Lansdale being involved in this. I was just like, God, the, I mean, that just makes way too much sense uh, for it not to happen. <laughs> um, I agree. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So the the pale door comes out August 21st in theaters and on demand. And I'm assuming theaters uh, you just alluded to drive ins are yep. uh in play there uh but uh august 21st for that and uh and scare package which we've talked uh, about a bunch on this too is october 20th is a blu-ray and uh it's on shutter right now if you want to if you want to see it uh there and everything yeah. but uh thanks a lot uh aaron for coming in and uh, giving us your time i love talking about movies i love talking about the process and everything and and you gave us a whole you know uh, wealth of information there and I, I love it i'm glad that you came on no thank you thank you so much um it was it was a lot of fun to kind of be here and um yeah and i'll look forward if you do a cinema sins and we can then we can talk separately about that <laughs> yeah. yeah i know we'll just, we'll i know guys you do it you know you've already you've already volunteered to do the cinema sins right yeah exactly right. I, I know i know what they are yeah here there's, do, there's so do many... my job for me <laughs> um, that's directing yeah yeah <laughs> um we'd like to thank aaron b Kuntz again uh for uh coming on to the sendcast um and we are we can be reached at our usual uh social media stuff yeah. and everything like that uh but uh that's gonna do it for this interview it's chris atkinson and jonathan watkins we'll see you next time thanks for listening Comment on our episodes on our SoundCloud page. Check us out on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Reddit. And be sure to visit cinemasins.com. All right, guys. You know what? You want to join the Sin Club? This is this is how you do this. You need to get on Patreon and go to patreon.com slash cinemasins 
because you can get stuff early. You can get, uh, you know, you can get videos early. You can get podcasts early. There's even some tiers where you can get a bonus video that nobody else gets to see. There's uh, two bonus podcasts. Uh, like recently, what did we do? We did uh, Overlord for a, for a Sins video. Uh, we did a couple of podcasts. Question was uh, asked, what movie from your childhood could you not watch again? Uh, so on and so forth. On CinemaSins, we uh, answered questions that uh, had been lingering, and we went ahead and a- asked, uh, answered those and everything. So get on get on our Patreon and take a look at the tiers and see what's, what's, uh, what's best for you. These are just sort of our thank you to uh, all of our members and everything that we're, we're uh, giving this extra content. And um, there's even stuff like uh, you can choose bo- uh, podcast topics. You can uh, get discounts on merch. Uh, we give you some handwritten notes. There's, uh, uh, there's some uh, discounts on fan events. Uh, there's all sorts of little things that you can, you can get into, uh, uh, from membership. So, so go to patreon.com slash cinema and check it out.